I love how that song just presents the gospel from Christ's birth through his death, through his resurrection. And um, it seems like a very fitting song to sing before we go back to the book of Romans, which is all about the gospel, the gospel of God. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and, and turn with me back to Romans chapter 1. If you're visiting with us today, we've been uh, studying, uh, just recently launched this study into this uh, epic uh, book, um, maybe the most important book in, in, uh, in the New Testament, possibly the whole uh, Bible. And uh, we have arrived at verse 18. Um, I know some of you thought we'd never get out of the introduction, right? But we have, we made it. We made it through the prelude, uh, verses 1 through 17, and now we are going to launch into the body of the letter uh, this morning. And I want to read for you verses 18 through 32, and uh, this will be the portion of, of, of the text that we will look at starting today, and we'll have to uh, probably go into next week as well. But let's read this together, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, this is truly one of the most sobering, scary passages in the entire Bible. And so rightly, this sermon that we're about to hear is going to be one of the most sobering, scary sermons unlike 
we're used to hearing. But Lord, I pray we'd all get the sense that even, even as Paul said when he proclaimed your word in your sight that it was as if you could smell the sweet fragrance of heaven on one hand and the smoky stench of hell on the other. Lord, I pray that we would come to grips with the fact that there will be some as a result of hearing this message who will go to heaven and there are some as a result of hearing this message will go to hell. Well, this is indeed an overwhelming, sobering reality. And I'm not worthy of this moment, nor are any of us, but I pray that you would be accurately represented this morning as you've revealed yourself to us in this text. For your glory we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on May 18th, 1980, you may remember that Mount St. Helens in Washington State's Cascade Range erupted with what is probably the most visible display of nature's fury that the modern world has ever witnessed. At 8.32 a.m., the explosion ripped 1,300 feet off the top of the mountain, sending smoke and ash 16 miles into the sky. The blast, they said, had a force of 10 million tons of TNT, which is roughly equal to 500 Hiroshima's. It leveled 150-foot fir trees as far as 17 miles away. A total of 3.2 billion board feet of lumber was destroyed, enough to build 200,000 three-bedroom homes. 60 people were killed, most of whom were burned to death by a blast of 300-degree heat traveling at 200 miles per hour. Probably the most memorable victim of the Mount St. Helens eruption was a crotchety 83-year-old man named Harry Truman. You may have remembered the story. He, operated, uh, and he owned and operated Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake, which is, was just five miles from the summit. And as the, the seismic activity grew more violent every day, the governor of Washington ordered uh, those who lived in the immediate area to evacuate with the exception of a select group of scientists and security personnel and State officials tried over and over to get Harry Truman to leave. But despite their repeated warnings and, and the impending eruption, Harry stubbornly refused to leave his lodge and opted instead to ride out the threat with his 16 cats. He openly defied the U.S. Geological Society team who had been predicting a natural disaster for a long time. In fact, on the day before the eruption... Truman was quoted as saying this. They've been saying the mountain is going to erupt for over seven years, and it hasn't. I obviously more, know more than the experts. This blankety-blank mountain won't blow. Well, the very next day, Harry and his lodge and his cats were instantly incinerated by the 200-mile-per-hour blast and buried under three feet, or excuse me, 300 feet of lava and debris. Not a single trace of him was ever found. 
I, I tell this story of Harry Truman because I think it's a, a microcosm of, of all who openly defy the reality of the impending eruption of God's wrath. They fail to heed the, the warnings throughout Scripture that a day is coming when God's wrath will explode in the most furious display of anger against sin that the world has ever seen. They stubbornly refuse to leave their life of sin behind and flee the wrath to come. They, they think they know better. But one day, one day they will find out too late that what the Bible predicted is true after all. This morning we're going to look at what God has revealed in his word about his wrath. Now I think I need to begin by saying that the wrath of God is probably the most despised and downplayed attribute of God. In fact, I've got a lot of books in my library on God's attributes. I've collected them over the years. It's something that I love to study, the attributes of God. And um, it's interesting that, that um, most of them dedicate an entire chapter to various attributes of God but surprising, only, only a few, a handful, have an entire chapter on God's wrath. And it's no surprise why the wrath of God is a, is a topic that's often avoided, sometimes even denied by believers. We all like to talk about and, and play up the nice attributes of God, like His love and His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness and His goodness. But for some reason, we have a problem with God's wrath. What's more, we realize that the wrath of God is not fashionable in today's culture, so we avoid bringing it up in conversation. I mean, if you wanted to, you know, make some enemies, just, uh, just bring up the wrath of God next time you're standing at the water cooler at work. See how that goes for you. And, and so we don't talk about it. We treat it like it's Christianity's dark, ugly secret. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, one of my favorites, and by the way, he did dedicate an entire chapter on explaining God's wrath. This is what he said, quote, It is sad, indeed, to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or who at least wish there was no such thing. While some would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it. He goes on. He said, others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with his goodness and so seek to banish it from their thoughts. But what saith the scriptures, Pink asks? God has made no attempt to conceal the facts concerning his wrath he is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong to him. And whether you realize it or not, there, there are more references in the Bible to God's anger and fury than there are about his love and compassion. For example, just turn back with me to the Old Testament, to Nahum. Nahum, one of the minor prophets, and again, maybe the best way to find that is just kind of go to Matthew, and then start going backwards through the minor prophets, and you'll eventually get to Nahum. 
And I think the first eight verses in the book of Nahum could be considered the classic Old Testament description of God's wrath. And Nahum was writing about God's judgment of Nineveh. You may remember Nineveh associated with Jonah. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the pagan nation that had risen up, that God had raised up to destroy uh, the the northern uh, uh, section of Israel um, and uh, and now was uh, threatening to overcome Judah as well. And uh, while God was gracious to um, show mercy to them, when they repented, when Jonah came and he preached the gospel to them, he preached uh, repentance to them, and they repented. And God had mercy, but that repentance was short-lived. That revival uh, slowly uh, dissolved. And 150 years later, they were back in the same depraved condition that they were in. And so God was now pronouncing his final judgment against the capital city of Assyria. Notice what he says here in verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the, book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. Here it is, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the blossoms of Lebanon wither, mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is just one example of many that we could read throughout the Old Testament um, on the theme of God's wrath. I appreciate what J.I. Packer wrote in his classic book, Knowing God. He said, clearly, the theme of God's wrath is one about which the biblical writers feel no inhibitions whatsoever. Why then should we? What is it that makes us awkward and embarrassed when the subject comes up? That prompts us to soft pedal it and hedge when we're asked about it. What lies at the bottom of our hesitations and difficulties? He's asking, hey, what, what is it? Well, why are we hesitant? Why do we have a difficult time with this? He said this, the root cause of our unhappiness seems to be the disquieting suspicion that ideas of wrath are in one way or another unworthy of God. In other words, our problem is that we tend to equate God's wrath with our wrath. But God's wrath is nothing like our wrath. God is not irritable. He doesn't have a bad temper or a short fuse. He doesn't blow up when he doesn't get his way. 
He doesn't fly off the handle at the, the slightest infraction. He, he's not a, a ticking time bomb waiting to go off at any moment. His anger is not out of control, which, by the way, is a description of our anger. We need to understand that his anger is nothing like our anger. God's wrath is holy. It's pure. It's untainted with sin. You've likely heard the term righteous indignation. In other words, being angry like God is angry. Well, I've just chosen to call it righteous rage. And God's rage is an expression of his righteous character. God has every right to be furious with unbelievers. His anger, as we're going to see in this passage, is justifiable, it's understandable, it's reasonable. And if Nahum 1 is the classic Old Testament description of God's wrath, then Romans 1 is the classic New Testament description of God's wrath. There's no other passage, I think, in the scriptures that provides a clear understanding of what is without question the most sobering, terrifying attribute of God. And it's important that we understand this passage in the context of the overall theme of the book of Romans. And as I mentioned earlier, we just finished the the prelude to uh, this letter in verses 1 through 17. And uh, Paul began by introducing himself and providing a sneak preview of the gospel that God had called him to preach, and he had expressed how eager he was to preach the gospel in Rome. He said that in verse 15, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then in verses 16 and 17, he states the theme of the letter. We looked at this the last couple of weeks. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now at this point, if you're following Paul's logic, you would expect Paul to immediately launch into an explanation of how the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. But that's not what he does. Notice the very next verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and a righteous domain. He's like, hey, time out, Paul. I thought you were introducing the subject of the righteousness of God. Now you're flipping switches here, and, and now you're talking about the wrath of God is revealed. In fact, he didn't return to the subject of God's righteousness until chapter 3, verse 21, where he said, but now apart from the law, law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So you say, well, what's going on then in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Well, what Paul does is he digressed or took a detour to talk about man's unrighteousness or man's sinfulness. And if you have kept that little roadmap for Romans in your Bible like I encourage you to, there probably still are some on the back table. We'll keep them supplied for you in case you forget it or lose it. Um, But if you notice this roadmap for Romans... 
Paul, we're in this opening, uh, or we're in this uh, first half of the book, chapters 1 through 11, where uh, he's explaining the gospel of God. This is the doctrinal section, and he's uh, provided us an introduction. But now we get to the body of the letter, and the very first thing he addresses is the subject of condemnation or the lack of righteousness. And he's going to show us here in this next section how the Gentiles are guilty before God. The Jews are guilty, and ultimately the entire world is guilty. And so what was Paul doing here? Well, I think Paul wanted to give the Romans the bad news first before he, before he told them the good news. He, he wanted to present the problem before he provided the solution. He wanted to show us the, the terrible, horrifying state that we are in before he shows us the way of escape. Bottom line, I think Paul knew that we could never fully appreciate the awesomeness of God's grace and mercy and love unless we understand the awfulness of God's wrath. It's as if he paints this, this, this black backdrop, just, just all black. And you're like, Paul, what are you doing? I don't like the look of that. Well, he's getting ready to splash some, some white paint across that. And how much more will that white color jump out and seem so much more brilliant, right, against a black backdrop. And so that's what he's doing here. And notice the connection here in verse 17. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men. That word for there in verse 18 is a connecting word. He's connecting what he's said in verse 17 with what he's going to say in verse 18 and following, this is the cause or the reason why God's righteousness needs to be revealed. Why is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith? Well, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, all, all men are unrighteous and are by nature objects of God's wrath, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Every one of us is under divine condemnation and deserves to be punished by God for their sin by being separated from his presence for all eternity. He's going to tell us in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is what? Death. Beloved, this is why Paul was so gung-ho for the gospel. And why we should be so gung-ho to preach the gospel. People are in a desperate state. And there's only one answer to their problem, and it's the gospel. And so we have the, the privilege of telling them how they, be, they can be cured from cancer, if you will. I mean, how odd would that be if we had the cure for cancer? And there was a bunch of people walking around with cancer and we never told them. We kind of kept it to ourselves. That doesn't make any sense at all. We would be running around telling everybody that we met that there's a cure. We could liken Paul here to a skilled physician who, who gives a, a devastating diagnosis of man's depraved condition. 
That's what's going on here in verses 18 to 32. I think this might be a helpful way to look at this text that, that, that it's like we're going to the doctor's office. And um, after carefully and, and thoroughly examining our symptoms to determine what's wrong, the doctor is going to provide a, a detailed explanation of our problem. And so we just kind of went to the hospital. We had some mild symptoms, maybe a little headache here, a little pain in the side, and the doctor performs a routine exam, and we wait for the results, expecting some simple diagnosis with a typical prescription of some kind, and the doctor returns and informs us that we have terminal cancer and we only have a few months to live. I mean, that would be devastating news, wouldn't it? That would leave us stunned. It would leave us speechless. And I think that's how we should respond to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. We should be stunned. We should be speechless. Because spiritually speaking, we've all been diagnosed with a terminal condition far worse than cancer. It's called sin. And because God is holy, he must punish sin. And so in order to impress on us why it's so urgent to preach the gospel, why is Paul so eager, why is he not ashamed, why is he bold to preach the gospel? Well, Paul goes on here to explain three particulars of God's righteous rage against man's unrighteous rebellion against him. And so we see in verses 18 through 20 the, the revelation of God's rage. In verses 21 through 23, we're going to see the reason for God's rage. Why is God so angry? And then verses 24 through 32 is the result of God's rage. What, what, is, what is the result? What are the consequences of God's wrath upon us? There's some serious ramifications that we're going to look at here in this text. But this morning, let's just look at this first particular regarding God's wrath against man's unrighteous rebellion, and that is the revelation of God's rage, the revelation of God's rage. Notice, again, verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God. And we have to just stop there and say, okay, what in the world is the wrath of God? What are we talking about? What did Paul mean when he said the wrath of God? Well, there are several different words in the Greek language for wrath, but the one that Paul used here and the one that's most often used is the word orge. And, and the word was used to describe a, a fruit that would swell up with juice until it burst, kind of just ripened um, uh, as it got right, just burst open. Or, or the bud of a flower swelling and, and cracking and gradually bursting into bloom. That was the idea of of, of orge. And so orge really describes God's anger against sin as gradually building in intensity, ripening, if you will, until one day it just bursts forth upon sinners. But let me give you a definition of God's wrath. God's wrath is his settled 
disposition and resolute action against sin. God's wrath is his settled disposition and resolute action against sin. In other words, it's how he feels about sin and what he must do about sin. That's what God's wrath is. God hates sin and he must punish it. I think the simplest definition of God's wrath is simply his judgment against sin. That's his wrath, his judgment against sin. A.W. Pink defines the wrath of God as his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. John Murray um, says it this way, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is a contradiction of his holiness. I guess we could say it in a simple way, our sin makes God want to puke. Wrath is is God's holy hatred of sin. It's his, his holy hostility against sin, which is directed toward, you ready for this, individuals who sin. You're like, wait a minute, time out. What happened to the God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner? Right, we, we've all heard that. We, we, in fact, maybe we've even said that. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that that is not the most biblical of expressions. When you consider Psalm 5, verse 5, which says, talking about God, you hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Or Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. This is a daily experience for God. He says, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. And this is graphic imagery um, reminiscent of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he used some of this graphic imagery in that sermon. And, and the imagery here is as, as if God has a bow and arrow and he's got that bow cocked back like this and he's aiming it at your heart. Every day, that's the condition that we lived in as an unbeliever. And the only thing that kept him from letting go of that arrow and having it plunge into our heart and destroying us and sending us to hell was his grace and his mercy, his patience. I cut my teeth um, in the early years in evangelism using the four spiritual laws. little track, I'm sure some of you have uh, used that before, heard of the four spiritual laws, and, and there was just four statements that you would share with someone um, in, in, by way of just sharing the gospel. And the very first one, some of you probably remember this, well, what's the first statement, the, four, the, the first spiritual law? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Remember that? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, based on what we're seeing and what we're going to see, I think a more accurate starting point might be, you ready for this? God hates you and has a horrible plan for your life unless you repent. Now, I'm not suggesting that's where you start, your, is your starting point, okay, at the water cooler tomorrow morning. Just want everybody to know God hates you and has a horrible plan for your life unless you repent. 
But theologically, we need to understand that's underwriting principle. Everyone needs to know, first of all, that their sinful lives cause God to grow angrier with them every day, and someday he will pour his wrath out upon them if they don't repent of their sin. Now, for those who might have questions whether God's wrath will be revealed in the future, come on, that's serious. Seems kind of a little archaic, Ken. You know, get with the program. Um, well, I think all you need to do is look in the past to see how God revealed his wrath throughout human history. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve? They sinned and they got banished from the garden. Moral of that story, God hates sin and will punish it. How about the flood? It says that God looked down on the earth and every thought of men was evil always, continually. And he regretted that he had made them and so he said, we're going to wipe them all out and start all over with with uh, Noah and his family. Well, what's the moral of the story of the flood? God hates sin and will punish it. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? Entire city torched from heaven, fire from heaven because of its rampant homosexuality. What's the moral of that story? God hates sin and must punishment. How about the Israelites? God's own people being laid waste for 40 years, 2 million people plus whatever, died off in the wilderness. I mean, they were having a funeral every day. There was graves all over the place. What's the moral of that story? God hates sin and must punish it. How about the destruction of the Canaanites? As As the new generation of Israel grew up and they entered the promised land and God said, I want you to destroy all the Canaanites. Don't just run them out of town. Don't just run them out of Dodge. I want you to kill them all. Well, what's the moral of that story? God hates sin and must punish it. And so let's apply this principle to the future in regards to hell, which the Bible describes as a place of everlasting punishment, fire, brimstone, Weeping and gnashing of teeth, utter darkness where worms never die. It's a place of unquenchable fire. What's the moral of that story? God hates sin and must punish it. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Paul talks about the coming wrath of God, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He's talking about futuristic wrath here. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the testimony of the Thessalonian believers was that they um, had turned 
to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And in 2 Thessalonians, this is how Paul described that wrath to come. When Jesus returns in verse 7, this is 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God, presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. And so all very clear references that there will come a day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And if we don't believe the gospel, then we will be banished to hell for all eternity. In fact, God is simply going to give us what we deserve, and not only that, he's going to give us what we want. You didn't care about my glory during your lifetime. Why would you care about it for all eternity? And so you're going to get what you asked for is to not have me in your life. Now that's all futuristic, but go back to chapter 1, verse 18. Notice it says, for the wrath of God, it does, does it say will be revealed in your Bible? What does it say? Is revealed. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Literally, the Greek here says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In other words, there's a, a present element to God's wrath. That was what Paul had in mind in this verse. He wasn't thinking about future wrath. He was thinking about present wrath. You say, well, what is that? Well, according to this statement... The wrath of God is continually and constantly being revealed even as we speak right now. That it's like a, a dam that's slowly spilling over the top ever so slightly, but that dam will one day burst wide open and destroy everything in its path. Or maybe like a volcano, we've talked about that, we've seen that in the news recently, that periodically releases some smoke or ash, but will one day violently erupt and destroy everything around it. So we need to understand what Paul has in mind here is, is, is this present, continual, this is not even yet what's going to happen, it's what's happening right now. You say, well, who or what is God angry at? Why is he so in a rage, if you will, a righteous rage? Well, notice what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So two things that God is angry about. Number one, ungodliness, which is a disregard for God. This is a lack of respect, a lack of reverence, a lack of devotion for, for who God is. It's a failure to give God the honor and the glory that is due him. But he's also angry about unrighteousness, which is a disregard for God's command. If ungodliness is a disregard for God, 
Unrighteousness is a disregard for God's command. It's a lack of respect, reverence, and devotion for what he has said. Not just for who he is, but for what he has said. In other words, it's a failure to submit to and obey his commandments. And so man's unrighteousness is a direct result of his ungodliness. In other words, if you deny God, you will naturally disobey God. And we're going to see that explained in detail in verses 21 through 32. That that what happens? What is the natural result of those who deny God? They're going to disobey God. And so all the bad things that we do really stem from one thing, not doing the one right thing, which is honoring God, acknowledging God, obeying God. But notice, what does this ungodliness and unrighteousness lead men to do? He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they're constantly trying to hold down the truth about God or they're trying to hold it captive. It's as if they, you know, they, 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 they kind of were, they had something they shouldn't have had and they, you know, whatever. It's a, they, they, the little kid brought the puppy into the, into the room when mom said, time to go to bed and, and here comes mom and he takes the puppy and puts it in his toy box and sits on the top. Sits down on the top of the toy box. And that little puppy's kind of trying to get his head out, right? And, 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 uh, and, and, and the little boy's trying to act like there's nothing in the box. He's suppressing the truth. Or how about if you've ever, ever been in a pool, right, and you had one of those big beach balls and you try to push that beach ball down under the water and what, what's happening, it's always trying to pop itself back up and it's really hard to keep that thing down. But that's suppressing the truth or, or, or literally you, you, you take the truth and you lock it in jail and you throw away the key and forget about it. That's the idea here of suppressing the truth. And they do it, notice, in unrighteousness. It's as if we, we okay, Paul, we get it. You're, you're really concerned about unrighteousness here. He says it twice. In other words, people suppress the truth so that they can hold on to their sin. They love to sin. They don't want to stop. And so they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And then he explains a little bit further what he meant by that. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Well, what is this truth that they're suppressing? The truth that there's a God who deserves to be honored and glorified and submitted to and obeyed. That's the truth that they're suppressing. He says that truth, that which is known about God, that God is knowable, is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So God has made it unmistakably clear to everyone that he exists and he's worthy of honor and thanks. In fact, look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, everybody knows that there's a God. Verse 28 And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, in other words, they knew that there was a God, they just didn't want to acknowledge him anymore. How about verse 32? And though they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They even know what God considers worthy of death. That's wrong. 
That's right, that's wrong, that's a crime worthy of death. They know that. How do they know that? Well, according to chapter 2, verse 14, it says um, that God has written this on their hearts. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of the Jews, do instinctively the things of the law, in other words, why are they keeping the Ten Commandments anyway, even though they weren't given to them directly? They don't have the law. They're a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Never got a copy of the Ten Commandments, didn't get the memo from Mount Sinai, doesn't matter. God not only wrote the commandments on those tablets, right, on Mount Sinai, he also wrote it on every man's heart. You've got the Ten Commandments written on your heart. Everyone does. Their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternatively accusing or else defending them. In other words, we know there's a God based on our conscience. Our conscience tells us God designed us with a conscience. It's kind of a built-in mechanism that the Creator put in, installed in us, if you will, when He made us, like a little homing device, right, that would automatically direct us to Him. So in a nutshell, everyone knows deep down inside there's a God. You know what that means? There's no such thing as an atheist. Atheists don't exist. If they're honest. I love John Blanchard's book that he wrote about this subject and his title was, Does God Believe in Atheists? That'll, get, that'll sink in in a second, right? Atheists don't believe in God. Well, that's not the question. Does God believe in atheists? According to Romans 1, no. There isn't anything, there is no such thing as an atheist. And the reason why people don't want to admit there's a God is that they would have to submit to him and they would no longer be able to live their lives the way they want. It's, it's John chapter 3. The, the, the light came into the darkness, but people love the darkness And so they rejected the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And it's as if this was a dark room and and there was this all sorts of decadence and depravity going on in here and you just imagine what kind of sin could be happening in this room and and, and it's, it's completely pitch dark and everybody's sinning and all of a sudden somebody shows up and flips the light switch on and everybody stops what they're doing and they look over to the person that turned the light switch off and said... Turn it off. We don't want the light. We want to continue in our sin. That's what Jesus did. Jesus showed up and switched the light on. And everybody said, no, no, we don't want you. Get out of here. Turn the light back off. We love our sin. That's what's going on in the world. And so people act like he doesn't exist, which, which, which makes God mad because he made it obvious to everyone that he exists. Notice he goes on in verse how, how, how is it that, that God made it evident to them? For, I'll tell you how, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So the invisible God made himself visible through creation, through what he's made. Look back at Psalm 19 for a second. 
this is probably the best example of how God revealed himself through creation. Psalm 19. Here we see David talking about the works of God and the word of God. And we're going to see here what theologians refer to as the difference between general revelation and special revelation. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. In other words, this is a silent witness. The sun and the moon and the mountains and, you know, everything else, they're not saying, hey, there's a God, you need to repent of your sin and get right with him. They're not saying anything, they're showing that there's a God. Their line has gone out through the earth, verse 4, and their utterances to the ends of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Talking about the sun, the sun alone is enough to prove that there's a God. I mean, if we were to get into all the facts and details about the sun, it would just blow our mind away. And then he says, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the symbol. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So he flips from talking about the works of God to the word of God. And while creation is silent in its revelation of God, God's word is loud and clear. It's, it's vocal. It communicates. And so we have this distinction between what's called general revelation, which God has revealed himself generally to all mankind through creation, the things we see around us, and through our conscience. But then there's special revelation, which is this thing right here. This is the word of God. It's special revelation, along with the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that general revelation is enough to condemn us all, but not enough to save us. We need Special revelation. We need the word of God. We need to know about Christ in order to be saved. And yet that's not in any way to undermine what Paul is saying here about general revelation. Isaiah 6, 3, the whole earth is filled with his glory. John Calvin said that the universe is a theater for God's glory. When Paul and uh, Barnabas were in Lystra and the people uh, they healed someone, and so the people wanted to worship them, bow down and worship. And he said, well, time out. We're just men like yourselves, and we're here to preach the gospel to you. And this is what he said in Acts chapter 14, verse 15. You should turn from these vain things, this idolatry, to, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and say and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. He was appealing to God's general revelation, the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in it, 
fact that he allows it to rain from heaven on the good and the, and the, the righteous and the unrighteous. He's appealing to them based on general revelation. But back in Romans 1, notice he says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, specifically his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. His eternal power, what is Paul talking about there? It's, I think it's just the power that it takes to create everything and hold it all together. And when we just consider the fact that the earth rotates a thousand miles per hour on its axis, so we're going a thousand miles per hour this way, you know, just spinning on an axis right now. That's happening right now. And at the same time, it's rotating a thousand miles per hour on its axis, it's rotating a thousand miles per minute around the sun. I mean, just imagine that if you had a little top or something or a way to recreate that. So you got this thing spinning this way. At the same time, it's doing this the whole time. And I'm looking at you and your hair's not even messed up. And I'm not even feeling dizzy right now. How, how is that possible? We know, scientists prove, there's nobody that denies those facts about astronomy and things like that. And that's what's going on right now. How is it possible that we're sitting here and not flying all over the place, hitting off the walls. It's the power of God. So it's his eternal power and divine nature. In other words, his character, all of his divine attributes that we see. In other words, creation demands a creator. Design, intelligent design demands a designer. It's as if you went into an art gallery and looked at all these paintings, these beautiful pieces of art, and you thought, oh, I wonder how this all happened. I wonder if an explosion happened a billion years ago and created this, you know, the Louvre. No, there were artists who created those things. Duh. I mean, come on, we don't play that game when we're looking at, walking around an art gallery, or if we see this magnificent skyscraper and go, wow, that's amazing. I wonder if, you know, what, did I miss that in the news that there was some big explosion right here, and all of a sudden this thing just just came into being? No, that required an architect, a designer, somebody who built that thing. Again, we don't even play those games in our mind with, with, with normal stuff like that, but we do when it comes to God, even though he's provided a ton of evidence that he exists. I don't know how you can have a baby and not believe there's a God. Those of us who have had children, I mean, it was just like, took your breath away. Like, I cannot, this is unbelievable. I can't even... It's surreal. Watching it all go down, I'm like, whoa, that was the most incredible thing I've ever experienced. And many testify that it was through the birth of their first child that they came to know Christ. They, they could no longer deny that there was a God. We had, uh, years ago, when we first started the church, a guy named Joe Martin come and... Uh, he wrote a book called The Evolution of a Creationist. Kind of a tricky name there. And he was just talking about his evolution from originally being an evolutionist to become a creationist. And part of the thing that really convinced him was what he ended up calling and, and videotaping and coming up with a video series called Incredible Creatures That Defy Evolution. Go home and do some research on a giraffe. And how all that whole neck thing works. 
or a woodpecker and how that little dude's brains are not scrambled eggs. That, that if you and I were banging on, you know, our nose on a tree all day, it, it, you know, our, we wouldn't have any brain left. But how does that, is that evolution? There's no way. That defies evolution. You say, well, why does evolution have such a huge appeal still? Even though it, it, it's so illogical. It's so irrational. Well, people want some explanation of origins that will eliminate God. Why? Because they want to be able to do whatever they want. And they know if there's a God, then they're accountable to God. But if there's no God, then there's no rules. And if there's no rules, there's no responsibility or uh, no punishment. And so if there's no punishment, there's no restraints. We can do whatever we want. If it feels good, do it. Notice how he ends this verse. He says, For since the creation of the world is of invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood that through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Talking about all mankind. Listen, no one can claim ignorance or innocence in regards to God and his wrath. And when we stand before God someday, no one's going to be able to say, well, I didn't know you existed. No one ever told me. I don't deserve to be punished. Well, let me ask you this. Does a father have every right to punish his teenage son for not taking out the trash when he's made it very clear, abundantly clear that that's his responsibility and he needs to take out the trash? He has every right to, to punish that son. And even if the son makes excuses, why he didn't do it? Well, you never told me. How was I supposed to know? And the father simply says, son, you know better. You know better. You, you mean you didn't see the billboard and the flashing sign and the airplane pulling the banner that said, son, don't forget to take out the trash? I did all that for you on the way home from school, right? And I put them all along your path from school so you wouldn't forget. Wanted to make sure it was clear. And oh, by the way, I left you a voicemail. Um, I sent you an email. I texted you. I even sent you a Snapchat and took a picture of the trash can and, you know, so you'd see it, have it there. No excuses, man. I mean, this is how plainly God has made himself known to us. We know better. We stand guilty before God. One of the questions that always comes up in in the context of Romans 1 is, well, what about that native in East Chapipi somewhere? I just made that up. That was supposed to be funny. But but seriously, it is a sobering thought. What about the heathen? who never hears the gospel. How how does this apply to them? Let me just read for you what I thought is a brilliant description of missions. It's written back in the 1960s. 
Many missionaries point out that the heathen know more than we think. They know that there's a God. There are no atheists among heathen tribes. There has never been discovered upon earth a tribe of people, however small or depraved, which has not believed in some kind of God or had some system of worship. The heathen found in so-called primitive tribes know that they have sinned. When a Christian comes to them and talks about sin, he often finds ready acknowledgement that this is true. The heathen seems to know that their sins must be punished. They seem afraid of punishment and afraid of death. They know that sin must be atoned for, and they seek ways of appeasing their angry deities or deity. Things very insightful. In other words, we shouldn't sit around and, 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 and play Monday morning quarterback with God and say, hey, God, it doesn't seem fair to send someone to hell who's never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. But this passage makes it clear that every person, no matter where they live on this planet, has general revelation which is enough to condemn them to hell. And in order for them to be saved, they need special revelation. They need to hear what God's word says about what God's son did to atone for their sin. And I'm of the persuasion that if someone lives up to the light of God in creation, the general revelation, God will send someone to share the gospel with them. I mean, you think about the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 or Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. These were unbelieving Gentiles who, who were reading the scriptures and were fearing God, and, but they didn't know the truth of the gospel, and they were responding to general revelation. Well, God sent to the, Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch to explain Isaiah, right, 53, and then he sent Peter to Cornelius to share the gospel, and his whole family got saved. And I would just say this, if you're so burdened about the eternal destiny of heathens in Africa. That really, if you're wrapped around the axle about that, say, I just can't understand, that doesn't seem right, that doesn't seem fair, then listen, why don't you go to Africa? Seriously. I'm not being sarcastic, I'm being serious. If you are so burdened about that, praise God. God's given you that passion, given you that burden. Maybe he's calling you to go and to bring the gospel to them. Based on what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, that would be a beautiful thing. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's why we do missions, folks. That's why we support people like Shannon Hurley in Uganda and why we pray and send money and go on mission trips. That's why we do it. Paul hasn't even really gotten into the details yet, which come in verses 21 through 32. I mean, this is just kind of the initial diagnosis, if you will, of our depraved condition. It's only going to get worse. And I'm just warning you, if you come back next Sunday, it's only going to get worse. What we're going to have to read about and think about and process. But listen, as we sit here in the doctor's office, as it were, having just received such devastating, terrifying news, 
our first thought should be, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope of recovery? How about it, Doc? Do I have a chance of survival here? Anything I can do about this? The good news is there's hope. The cure is found in Christ, and God's prescription is this. We must flee from our sin and flee to Christ in faith in order to escape the wrath of God. How's that possible? Well, when Jesus hung on the cross, God poured out all his rage and holy hatred for sin on his beloved son. And when we admit that we've sinned against God and that we deserve to be punished for our sin, but believe that God punished his son in our place on the cross, we will be saved from God's wrath because it no longer abides on us, but abides on Christ. And God can't punish us for the sin that Christ was always already punished for. It's called double jeopardy. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son is eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's all about believing and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. And then, again, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's the good news of the gospel. And it was at the cross, the cross. You think this is scary. You think this is sobering. If, if you were standing at the foot of the cross... That was the most scary, sobering preview of the wrath to come when God poured out his wrath at Calvary. I want to close just by reading for you just an unforgettable picture that I came across a number of years ago in a great book about, on evangelism called Tell the Truth by Will Metzger. And this is um, his way of describing um, how we escape the wrath of God. He said, a prairie fire was whipped along by the wind so fast that it overtook everything in its path. One family, seeing the impossibility of outrunning the blaze, began a backfire and then covered themselves with earth as they lay in the midst of the already burned out circle. The roaring fire met the backfire and burned only up to the edge of the burned over area, then went around it, continuing its hungry race. The family was saved. They knew the only safe place was where the fire had already burned. If you know anything about forest fires, that's what they do. They start a backfire as the way to stop the fire, right? And if you can get in that area that's already been burned, you're safe. Listen to how he applies it. To God's wrath. He says, the fire of God's wrath has touched down at one particular point in history, and when it did, it utterly consumed a man as he hung on a cross. It did not burn a large area, but it finalized God's work of judgment. The fire of God's wrath will come again in history. This time, it will consume the whole earth. Will there be any place to hide? 
only on the hill on which the cross stood, there where the fire has already burned, Jesus Christ is our backfire. He is the only safe hiding place from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered and speechless by this description of our depravity and what we deserve as a result of it, but we're also thrilled when we hear about the solution that while you were pouring out your righteous rage on your son on the cross, you were also pouring out, demonstrating your righteous love for us and providing a way for us to escape your wrath. Father, who are we that you would do such a thing for us? I pray that we would leave here today just filled with praise and wonder and gratitude at our salvation, that we will never have to experience the wrath of God if we are in Christ. And Lord, if there is anyone here that that isn't in Christ, Lord, that they would see they need to be in Christ. They need to repent of their sin. They need to come to Christ in faith and follow him and obey him so that they could escape your wrath against their sin. And Lord, would you just make us urgent as we consider the people we're going to hang around this afternoon and tomorrow at work and school, Lord, that they are, most of them, probably headed for hell. And we have the answer. We have hope that we can share with them. And may we do that with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.